This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by the Institute for Humane Education, which is committed to educating a generation of solutionaries, students, and changemakers able to think systemically and act compassionately to solve the challenges of our time. Institute for Humane Education offers award-winning free resources for educators, online professional development, and online graduate programs with Antioch University. Learn more by visiting edcuration.com and searching the Institute for Humane Education or using the links in the episode notes. You're listening to the Ed Creation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional movements, resources, tools, and practices that are reshaping learning. Our guest today, Sharon Gamson-Danks, is the founder and CEO of Green Schoolyards America, whose mission is to inspire and enable communities to enrich their school grounds and use them to improve children's well-being, learning, and play while contributing to the ecological health and resilience of their cities. Sharon is an accomplished schoolyard designer, researcher, and speaker, and she's traveled the world to study hundreds of school grounds and to share best practices. She compiles that experience and research into her book, Asphalt to Ecosystems, Design Ideas for Schoolyard Transformation. Sharon's work evolved from her graduate studies in both city planning and landscape architecture, which led to a career as an environmental planner. And if you're like me, you have only a vague idea of what that actually means. Environmental planning is the practice of designing green cities. So with a joint degree in landscape architecture and environmental city planning, it's I have a background in designing green cities, but also an understanding of the ecosystems that are in them. So just out of curiosity, is that something that you kind of always knew you wanted to do? I mean, how how does one decide I want to create green cities? Good question. No, I think it, it uh, took shape for me in an internship after college. I knew I wanted to do something in the environmental sector, probably something in environmental education, and I wasn't sure where I should fit. And a friend of mine had a father who was in the nonprofit sector, and he jumped on the phone with me and gave me some good advice, which I've passed along to many uh, about to graduate. And the advice was to take three jobs that last no longer than a year that have different aspects of the field you're thinking of exploring and uh, try them out, see what you like the best and go to grad school. And that's exactly what I did. Sharon went to work with an environmental nonprofit that was the front runner in the sustainability movement. In fact, they were so early to the work that they obtained sustainable.org as their website. I was there, I was helping them to look at indicators of sustainability for cities, which was brand new in 1993 when we were working on it. And I was hooked. Look at the 30,000 foot view and you think about how all the systems fit together and how they might be, um, how they might fit together even better. And with an environmental city planning degree, you're looking at the ecological systems as well as the built infrastructure and the human systems of where the people are going and what, you know, what their well-being looks like. But then at one point, you actually kind of narrowed your focus. So you went from sort of this big picture to, I'm going to zoom in on schools and redesigning schoolyards and learning spaces. So what caused you to focus in on that? Um, it's, it was because I realized that 
Designing green cities is not a technical problem. It's a consensus problem. We know how to do it. We're just not doing it. And we knew how to do it 20 years ago. <laughs> Those little pictures in, a, in the book that we all see in, in elementary school of like the rain cloud and the arrow and it goes down the hill when we could just be going outside in a place that was built to show us the water cycle or that looked like a natural system and watching it, taking our umbrellas and trotting out into the playground and watching where it goes. And so it just seemed like a missed opportunity to not use the real thing in that water cycle example as the teaching resource instead of you know this. And it, it occurred to me that the kids who don't understand, who couldn't see the ecosystems function in their midst, probably grew up to be adults who didn't understand that it was important to vote to keep the creek clean under the city or to prioritize the habitat corridors that come through an urban area and allow wildlife to migrate. Or, you know, if you don't see those systems, it's hard to relate to them. It's hard to want to prioritize them. And so to me, Green Schoolyards was the place to intervene, to go back to the source and, and also originally, and just to try to, try to Think about the, the schoolyard as the, the green city that you would like to have. How do you put that in microcosm in that place and, and uh, you know, give kids wildlife habitat so they can watch the birds and butterflies come and, and visit it, that they can watch the rain in the water cycle do what it does in a bigger scale, that they can participate in participatory democracy and decide together how to use the shared public space that they have at school and then to be stewards of that space and taking care of it. They can produce food. They can pretty much all the systems you want to have in a well-functioning city. You could do it in a small scale. So you founded um, a nonprofit called Green Schoolyards and you partner with schools and districts, mostly in California where you're from, but I think in other parts of the world as well. And Mm -hmm. so can you give our listeners a better understanding of the work that's done by your nonprofit? I spent about a decade or so being a consultant on school ground design at a design firm with a colleague, Lisa Howard, who's a landscape architect, and we founded Bay Tree Design. And we we designed many dozens of green schoolyards and worked with many school districts. Um, But I decided that I I wanted to work on shifting the systems that these, these projects sit within, because there's only so much you can do one school at a time. I wanted to help create systems that would make green schoolyards the new default. Um, And so that's really what I set out to do about almost a decade ago with founding Green Schoolyards America. As an organization, Green Schoolyards America partners with school districts and public agencies um, in California and across the United States. And we help them to establish large-scale living schoolyard programs that seek to transform the school grounds into ecologically rich and park-like green spaces. Our goal overall is to improve children's health and learning and happiness while also contributing to communities, ecological and uh, climate resilience. And we're essentially working to change the norm for school ground design use and management so that all children will have access to the natural world and the places that they already visit every day. And um, we see equity as central to this work and we focus and collaborate with communities Um, that have the the greatest need for educational, environmental, health, and open space improvements. So how have you worked to make green schoolyards the default? And and is it the default in California? I think we're getting closer. It's not the default yet, but I think we are hitting the tipping point now. 
there's more than 100 years of history of schoolyard greening and of garden projects and other things in the United States. It comes and has come and gone in different time periods. Along the way of, of doing my research, I had the opportunity to co-found an international organization as well in, in 2010. We, we created the International School Grounds Alliance and brought together our colleagues from all different countries to talk about similar work that they've been doing. So what we're doing that is that is new for the United States, maybe, uh, in trying to remake the norm is the standard elsewhere already. And they look at our school grounds and have come here and looked at our particularly urban school grounds and are absolutely appalled. I had one colleague from Germany tell me that she, she was someone who did uh, worked on the, the rebuilding of Eastern German schools, East Berlin schools when they were reunified. And she said, what we have in our cities is worse than communist East Berlin. You know, it shocked the people we were with, but it's true. So they, uh, my friends from abroad asked why we incarcerate our children on our playgrounds with pavement. So I think green school yards is more than just the ecology. It's about telling kids that they matter. Adding green space builds uh, visible care into place and also just completely shifts the way that children and teachers relate to place. There's so much to be said for creating a space where people feel like being there. They want to be there. It's a welcoming space. It's a fun space. So you use the terms green schoolyard and living schoolyards a lot. And I think because of the reasons that you just said, <laughs> a lot of Americans don't have a clear picture in their head of what that even is. I use those two terms interchangeably. I, I've started to use um, living schoolyard more recently because I think it's it picks the aspects of a site that we really want to emphasize, which is living ecosystems and um, places for living, you know, places that are for well-being. And it's really difficult to be against one because then you're for a dead schoolyard. I think it's just really clear to say it's alive. First of all, it's a place with living systems. It feels like a park. Mm -hmm. um, and it has within it trees, gardens, outdoor classrooms, places for social space and gathering. It's a multifunctional environment. It's not a monoculture of asphalt. It's a, it's a complex ecosystem of opportunities for kids and teachers to be doing interesting things. And so you take, in taking a space and, and kind of breaking it into outdoor rooms by adding different, um, say, groves of trees or garden spaces, adding different spaces within the big space, you actually get so many more possibilities for the school to use it. And we try to make sure that a green schoolyard has layered uses so that nothing is single purpose if you can help it. Unpave the spaces that are not part of that emergency zone and add can add forests for shifting temperatures and for just making nicer, cooler, shadier environments for kids. And then garden spaces can be in the sun patch. You know, looking at the systems again of the where the light is, where the um, the wind is, where do you need to block wind with plants to make it more comfortable, things like this. It's about human comfort. It's about having things to to be curious about as a child of any age and to have adventures. Risk is the basis of all learning, that trying something new is inherently risky the first time you try it. And a life without risk means a life without learning. Children need adventure. They need time to explore. And we as society have not all around the world, but in the U.S. in particular, have not been allowing young kids to roam neighborhoods for several generations. And and so if we're not, if they're not getting the sense of adventure 
at age eight of going off several miles away from home by themselves anymore in our gener- this current generation, then we should be providing some of that adventure in the places we do allow them to go. For more on this topic of the educational benefit of allowing kids and teens more freedom and independence, check out Lenore Skenazy's book, Free Range Kids, or her nonprofit, Let Grow. And join us again on September 29th to hear more about the work of Let Grow in schools. In Sharon's book, she addresses not only the topics of adventure and independence, but also equity and diversity. In your book, Asphalt to Ecosystems, Design Ideas for School Transformation, you talk about how green schoolyards add diversity, which is a big focus for all of us in education right now, not not just in education, but a new awareness around the need to address diversity and equity issues. And um, it adds diversity to a structure that has traditionally supported competitive sports primarily and kind of standard play structures that may not be developmentally appropriate for all of the different ages represented at a school population. So talk briefly to our listeners about how green schoolyards help us address and add diversity. In the book that you're referring to, I was talking about landscape diversity. So like I think of, I do think of asphalt and empty grass as monocultures of experience. You can do pretty much one thing, and that's play with balls. I think that they were set up in the 40s and 50s to optimize for the outcomes that they wanted educationally, which were factory automation workers and physically fit soldiers for war. And that's what that landscape is set up to optimize for. And so we have different curriculum now, first of all, and hands-on learning requires you know, scientific investigation and wonder and, and coming up with creative solutions, and that is helped by having many supports in your visual environment that make you wonder and think those thoughts and give you opportunities to notice where shadows fall, where birds come, what, you know, when seasons change to, to have visual cues and, and landscape diversity for the enjoyment of humans, but also for the, the, the um, existence of wildlife um, and, and native systems. So there's landscape diversity and there's also right play diversity or social engagement diversity of things to do and so having a green schoolyard provides opportunities for children who are not the most dominant in athletics to also be leaders they end up at at, in the elementary age making up creative games and leading different groups of kids off to imagine that they are you know in another world somewhere or they they play a lot of active games and imaginative games um, and then they get out of the way of the, of the kids who do want to play with the ball so that there's more, even though you've divided the space up, there's still more space essentially for the ones who, wants to, who want to play ball to do so because the other children aren't in the way, which then reduces conflict on the playground that, that um, so that the kids are not in each other's way. They're not arguing as much. And one principal told me that after they converted their grounds um, from entirely uh empty asphalt with a few basketball hoops into a, a more diverse green schoolyard that she thought every teacher at her school had 20 more minutes to teach every day because they were no longer working out all the arguments that would come in after lunch recess. Um, and they could just get back. Kids were happy. They had a good time doing whatever their favorite thing was. And then they got back down to work. Yeah, that is amazing. And that was actually something I was really surprised to learn about in your book that you've discovered that um, green schoolyards actually affect 
um, social structures and play dynamics and dec- in they decrease bullying. Yeah. So how, how do they do that? Well, I think part of it is just that kids get out of each other's way. I mean, you pick on someone else because you're bored or you don't feel good about what you're doing. Right. And, and this gives more children, more opportunities to be themselves in a positive way. And so they, they can pick what they'd like to do. They don't need to be the child who's pressed against the wall in the little spot of shade that's there. If they'd really like to be doing art with, you know, making something out of sticks and rocks, or if they really want to be in an imaginative world or tucked up in a comfortable fort, stick fort with their friends or in a tree house, you know, some, there are all different kinds of creative arrangements that, that schools put into their landscape to make the social spaces more engaging. And that's true too of, of middle and high schools where you can encourage positive social groupings and make sure that there's enough seating for older children to older youth to be able to gather in ways that they would like to gather and asking them what that is, is very helpful. But often it's, it's making sure you don't have a gauntlet, a social gauntlet coming down. So there's only one path that if someone purchases, they, they watch you, you know, having multiple ways through and into places with many places for small groups to gather so no one can dominate it and having different elevated areas so you can see and be seen, but be a little out of the way. And so there's ways of designing for, for older groups too that make the space um, really usable. That is fascinating to me that you can, I mean, it shouldn't be right that we, that our, that our spaces affect our social dynamic, but it's just really enlightening to think about it in those ways. And you said that they're actually healthier too, that it decreases injuries and... Injuries you see in a grain schoolyard tend to be splinters, you know, things that are small and far, far fewer long bone fractures that you would see on a play structure. My understanding from my colleagues who know more about this than I do is that the, the resilient surfaces we put underneath a play structure are not meant to prevent injury. They're meant to prevent death. That's the only thing they prevent. So they mask... But we put them down and we call them safety surfaces. And then children see them and they say, oh, the adults have made this safe for us. So they stand up on like a a platform and they leap off for the ring and they miss. But if that was asphalt, they would never have tried that because they could see, they could observe the risk themselves. But we've masked the risk as adults. And then we we skew their ability to, to correctly evaluate the hazard. And so ironically, by putting those things in, we hide from the kids those those uh their ability to to keep themselves safe whereas like in a in a natural environment where kids that climb trees for example off-site of schools usually um they, they have far lower accident rates because you have to pay attention when every branch is a different angle and height than you do when you're going up a ladder when everything is precisely the same you can you anticipate it's going to be precisely the same so if it's not you you are more you're not paying attention when it's all the same, but you are paying attention when it's all different, and so that keeps you from tripping more. It keeps you from from falling. It uh, helps kids make better choices about how to navigate their the environment and get more balance in their bodies and yeah, um, so. and test things out too, right? Like a tree branch, there wasn't an engineer necessarily that designed that to hold your weight. You've got to test it out. But I think very few. U.S. schools um, actively encourage tree climbing on their site during during school. I did visit one in Sweden where um, the, the school had gone and marked certain trees with low branches that they felt were good climbing trees. 
But if kids are just off having adventures as they do or did in previous generations, they would climb trees and get the balance. And, you know, we've, Richard Louv has pointed out that kids in the current generation are several years behind kids in previous generations in their ability to balance and climb and strength. Like their physical skills have been lost because we have not allowed them to challenge themselves in places that are not standardized. So say there's a listener out there, which I'm sure there is just dying to know, like, how would a school work with green schoolyards? What is the process? Who initiates the process? Does it come from the district? Does it come from some teacher who gets all excited? Does it come from a group of parents? Is it all of those? We advise and collaborate with school districts and public agencies. So um, if an individual school or teacher was interested, we, we set up partnerships with the district itself, who then works sets up systems usually and works with schools that are interested. And so it's, we, we want to help districts set up frameworks so that all schools can do it. And we, we do have materials on our website that are intended for people to use directly themselves. Um, they're kind of uh, self-guided materials. There's a, we have a big resource library that we created in collaboration with with our colleagues um, as part of the National Outdoor Learning Initiative. And 300 or so volunteers helped us write this amazingly deep, rich library of resources, which is online now and free for anyone to use. And so a school or, or district that's interested can start there, have it divided into chapters by topic of end, but there's a, the very first place to start because it's really a vast amount of information. We've made a what we call a school pathway and a district pathway of of like that's kind of a tour through the library in order uh, if you're just starting in either of those levels. And so it's, it's a, a PDF you can download or a web page you can look at that like says that describes what to do and in which order to click and it will show you the things with more detail. Um, but so it's got some site play. It's meant it was set up originally for the pandemic, but most of the things in the library are for long term. You'll find the vast library of outdoor learning resources at greenschoolyards.org or through the links in the episode notes, along with more support from today's sponsor, the Institute for Humane Education. This is Zoe Weil, president of the Institute for Humane Education and author of The World Becomes What We Teach, which has become an Amazon number one bestseller in the philosophy and social aspects of education. We are proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At IHE, we believe that a just, healthy, and peaceful world is possible, and the most powerful way to build such a future is to prepare a generation of solutionaries. Solutionaries are able to see past polarized thinking, look at problems systemically, and use academic skills to collaboratively solve real-world problems in their communities and world. We offer educators free resources to integrate the solutionary framework into classrooms, along with professional development opportunities. We also offer online graduate programs with Antioch University. You can connect to the Institute for Humane Education at edcuration.com, and you'll find the book, The World Becomes What We Teach, in the episode notes. Creating a green schoolyard or transforming, which is probably the position that most schools are in, they already have a space and they need to transform the space, Mm -hmm. is a process that unfolds typically over a number of years. So they start maybe with baby steps doing, you know, one thing or one portion, Mm -hmm. but it, it starts with the design. And 
who carries out the work? Well, I mean, there's many ways to begin. And I think starting small by thinking big is useful. Okay. And so, right. So individuals who are interested can, if their teachers can take a class outside to, to do anything that relates to their program, you can measure the surface temperatures of your asphalt, for example, and look at how that's different from natural surfaces and talk about urban heat island effects and how people make the environment hotter by the materials that they choose. And you can do art outside, you can do math outside, you can do you can think about how your curriculum can be embedded in the in the site. Um, if you're teaching geology, you can pick stones for a seeding circle that have igneous metamorphic sedimentary you know, properties. I went to a school once, it was an elementary school in Taiwan, and the principal was showing us these paving stones they had put into their grounds that were all they all had one square meter of area, but one was a square, one was a circle, one was a triangle. So you could see how that played out over different spaces. So math, that was math literally embedded in the pathways that most of the time you just walked over. But when you were doing that lesson, you could walk out and see. And so thinking about how the different lessons a teacher teaches can be embedded, you don't need to transform the whole site to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and some of it doesn't need to be embedded. You can just study the place that you're in or just use it as the place to sit while you're studying something else. And the National COVID Outdoor Learning Initiative that's where you collaborated with these different organizations and volunteers to create those resources can really walk any educator through a step-by-step -step process or give them the resources just to get started. There's also a couple of things that we made prior to the pandemic that are on there that might be of interest to teachers. One, uh, we have uh, the International School Grounds Alliance and Green Schoolyards America collaborated to make um, a series of books that are free for downloading. And they have, again, about 250 other ideas that are specific activities to do on your school grounds. Um, and they are simple, easy things with cheap materials that are on all different topics. Some of it is for teachers to use during class time. Some of it is for recess ideas or before and after school programs. And there's even a camping trip for the evening of, as a, you know, how do you use it as an outdoor space all in different hours that you had thought of before. And so it's just a lot of creative thinking. We asked almost 200 organizations around the world what their favorite thing to do outside with kids was. And that these are the collection of those ideas. And honestly, Sharon, this is becoming not a luxury. It's becoming a non-negotiable because in view of, of climate change and rising temperatures, we're finding that schoolyards are literally not safe places. They're dangerous places for students to be um, because of the temperatures and the lack of shade. And so you are right now working on a new initiative, the California Schoolyard Forest Initiative, I know that the initiative is in its baby stages and you're not even really announcing it publicly at the time of this interview, but can you tell us a little bit about the initiative, how it will work and how you made it happen? Because it's a statewide initiative, which is so exciting. Sure, sure. We just made our first public announcement about it yesterday. So it's brand new, but we're it is early on. Um, first, I'd say on the shade question, that it's, it's not that school grounds are unsafe, it's that unshaded school grounds are um, prone to being exposed to extreme heat. And they and children with smaller body size than adults are more vulnerable to extreme heat than adults are. And so we want to make sure that every child has a place that's shaded to go to that when it's hot, they can get out of the sun. Um, and so now 
um, in California, and I'm sure it's true across the country, there are millions of children who have no shade at school when they're outside. And there's there are uh, thousands of campuses in our state that have, when they have trees at all, they have not been put where the kids are. And so um, our focus is on trying to protect vulnerable children from the heat that we know is coming and that is already here. And trees take a while to grow. And so while it's not extremely hot right now, it will be in 20 years, say. So now or yesterday or 10 years ago was the best time to plant the trees, right? But second best time is now. So how do we take out contiguous blocks of pavement and put in a patch of forest that's half an acre, say, or you know something that is big enough to get into and plant the, that now? And so we are collaborating with the California Department of Education and the Forestry Department in California and 10 Strands to found the California Schoolyard Forest System, which is being set up to provide the framework to help that to happen at scale. So could other states use your framework? Well, we, we are hoping in our wider hopes that this is the first state in the National Schoolyard Forest System, which we would love to run. So yes, if others if other states are interested in that, we would love to collaborate. And if other educators or parents or anyone listening would love to know, like, what's the first step in starting to make this happen in my state or district, you have resources to help to guide them? We will. So the first thing that we are going to be working on, um, we have a grant from our forestry department to get started on this. And and so there the pieces we're working on first are policy alignment. And so there's policy analysis component with recommendations and then a library component that will be added to our main library that has to do with the tree oriented materials and how how individual schools can work on this themselves and what the right tree palettes are for their regions and what the you know curriculum ties that we find online. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're trying to highlight what's already out there and then produce materials that, that fill the gaps if there are some. So kind of going from big picture to, to zeroing in on some specifics again, you share so many lovely success stories and stories of transformation in your book. And you've worked with schools and districts all over the world, both to study what they're doing and also to help them to transform their spaces. Do you have any favorite success stories from your work? Oh, they're all favorites. Um, but I, I'd say a couple to, to share might be the, the district scale shifts that we're seeing. Um, and San Francisco was, was one of the first districts that we worked with. So 21 years ago, <laughs> the, the nonprofit community um, was gathering to help think about making green schoolyards in San Francisco. And then about, I'd say, 18, 17, 18 years ago, they passed a bond to um, fund greening their schoolyards. And um, the bond language was based on my master's thesis definition of a green schoolyard. Then over time, that district has, has done amazing things with so many people involved and has, has uh, now has a green schoolyard component anyway, in every school in the district. So I think San Francisco is really a leader in the United States in, in, the, in the depth and breadth of the greening and the curriculum ties and thinking about that and um, the maturity of the project in terms of, of being really well um, implemented. And then 
my kids were in the Berkeley school system and I know every school here has a garden and has had one for 25 years, I think. And so they all have garden coordinators and cooking teachers and an emphasis on curriculum integrated with being outside um, that I know my children benefited from. And, and um, they also have some phenomenal tree planting programs. One school with a 50-year-old child planted forest. That's our model for a lot of the work that we're doing. It already exists. We're just trying to make it everywhere. And others are planting Miyawaki forest, little tiny trees and really dense patches that will grow up. And, and the children are planting those too. They're Berkeley's doing great forestry work and garden work. And Oakland Unified is also doing fabulous work to, um, to shift their grounds. And we've been collaborating with Trust for Public Land over the last five years to help them set up district-wide systems and pilots of green schoolyards to move forward. And those are all very big examples. And so if your question is, how do you start small? I think that people shouldn't be afraid to dive in and do what speaks to them first and get a small success project, you know, a small project going that, that has success that you can point to and build interest around mm -hmm. um, to begin. And I would really encourage everyone to go to your book to see pictures of the, trans the school yard transformations um, from the different districts and schools that you've worked with because they're so inspiring and, um, and so compelling to be able to see those spaces and to see how much more welcoming and how much happier. I, I just picture kids arriving at the before and after pictures and thinking, how much more would you want to be in that space? And you have, it's not just your one book, you have, you and your colleagues have written a number of books and have a lot of resources. Can you give our listeners an idea of all of those different resources that are available to them? Sure. I would love to, love to mention them. Uh, my colleagues do such great work and their, um, their books are fabulous. And so I recommend that people check out Nature Play at Home by Nancy Strinisty and How to Grow a School Garden by Rachel Pringle and Arden Buckman-Spore. And um, Schools That Heal uh, by my colleague Claire Latine is also fabulous. There's two books in our activity guide series that have those 250 activities in them. And then there's a third one that's written in a similar format, but by one of our one of my mentors, um, her name's Sue Humphreys, and she was a principal of a school in England for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And she transformed the whole school from an empty agricultural site into a forest that was child planted. Mm -hmm. um, over a period of 40 years and her her curriculum is so rich and so gorgeous that you can download for free and wanted to also add before we close that I think school grounds matter and they've been written out of our budgets and they've been written out of of people's um, experience in a way like we walk through them we don't really look we just go straight to the building and and I think school ground land, is incredibly precious and that we need to treat it that way. It's the place that kids experience the world in. And it is also, as I see it, some of our most well-used public land, most well-visited public land and least funded. And I, I once ran some numbers on Yosemite National Park, which gets about 4 million people a year. And the California public school system, which has 6 million a day. And so there's about 250 times the user rate on California public school ground land, the 130,000 acres of that, than there is on a national park like Yosemite. It's a place we should be investing in as a community centers and as um, environmental resilience 
centers, places to build the future, plant the future we would like to see. Sharon, would you close with just a word of encouragement to somebody who's listening and thinking, I'm not a legislator, I'm not a landscape architect, but I do care what's what's a thing that I can do and um, yeah. for teachers or parents. I'd say do what you can where you are. For kids learn, like learning about climate change, you can't do so much to save the polar bears or the rainforest, but you can change this pavement into plants. And you can do that first by bringing pots of dirt and plants out. And later, if you get more people to join you to take out the asphalt and put in other things. As parents, you can form a green schoolyard committee and commit to coming once a semester or once a month to come and and work on the grounds. Um, In my own children's school, we had a PTA that, that added a position of green schoolyard coordinator so that it would be filled every year and someone would be responsible for collecting what needed the idea of what needed to be done and calling the work days. And then there was also a teacher that the faculty had picked as the point person to coordinate with the parent. And so those two systems really helped that school get going on a very low budget. And I'd say that's a great way to start um, asking, asking teachers what they would like most to teach outside and finding a way to embed those resources into the grounds, asking parents and kids what they would most like kids to be able to do in the schoolyard and finding a way to help them do those things. You can find Sharon Gamson-Danks, founder of Green Schoolyards America and the author of Asphalt to Ecosystems at greenschoolyards.org or simply by clicking the link in the episode notes. We've also included resources from the Outdoor Learning Initiative, links to the other two episodes in this series, and all the books mentioned. A reminder to our listeners that today's episode is sponsored by the Institute for Humane Education. Julie Meltzer, Maine's Curriculum Leader of the Year, tells us that the Institute for Humane Education's solutionary approach deepens learning engages students, and gives them both agency and optimism as they address the challenges they care about most. Preparing students to become solutionaries also reconnects teachers to the reason they entered the profession, to make the world a better place. The Institute for Humane Education's resources are also available in Spanish, French, Mandarin, and Arabic. Learn more about the Institute for Humane Education and its resources simply by visiting them at edcuration.com. Click the Let's Talk button to access free resources and learn more about their professional development opportunities. We hope you found this episode helpful and inspiring. And if so, please rate, review, follow, and share. And join us again next week to reshape learning with the Ed Curation Podcast.